thinking through in our home worship guides the idea of fasting and prayer and how these two things come together. If you have your handouts with you, you might see that the big idea of today's worship guide is to realize that fasting is a way to worship God with our whole body. In Scott McKnight's helpful little book called Fasting, he describes fasting as body talk. It's the way that the body can talk and speak. He says it's whole body stuff because worship in the Bible, the worship of God is a worship with our whole bodies in a concrete, physical, tangible, palpable way. There is a deep yearning of humans to do spirituality with our bodies. And so this is why I believe, as it's been said, we need to have an embodied spirituality in terms of the way we view our worship. Not just a spiritual worship, an embodied spiritual worship. Therefore, in this week's worship guide, we're going to take three parts and we're going to work through these three sections. And the first will be beginning to praise God for the goodness of his creation. And more specifically, we're going to look at Psalm 8 and how we want to praise God for his creation of human beings. And then we will observe in the second part the way the Bible instructs us to use our bodies in worship. Adam has agreed to give us a little bit of uh, instruction and encouragement in this in particular, in that second part. And then lastly, in the third part, we're going to see how the practice of fasting is one way for us to worship or use body talk, as Scott McKnight says, to talk to God with our whole being, not just with our mind or our spirit, but our very self, including our human bodies. So if you have your Bibles, I'd want you to turn with me to Psalm 8. It's page 450 in those using those black Bibles. Not sure if any of you took those home from church, but here we are. Psalm 8, and it's a, a short psalm, verses 1 through 9, and it begins and ends with the same phrase. Nice bookends. Follow along as I read. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This psalm is a psalm of praise. 
It is a commentary on a specific passage of scripture, and I wonder as I'm reading it and as you see the language in this psalm, if you could think what Bible passage that might be that the psalmist has in mind. He describes human beings as being crowned with glory and honor, and then talks about them having dominion over all the different aspects of the earth. Where in the Bible does God say that people are crowned with glory, with honor, and have dominion? Well, if you're thinking Genesis chapter 1, the very first page, first chapter of the Bible, then you are correct. Listen to these words in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, this is verse 26 and following, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In this first part of our home worship guide, we're asking just the simple question, what does it mean to be man, mankind that is, human? What does it mean to be a human? And the most fundamental answer that the Bible gives is right here in what I just read in Genesis chapter 1. To be a human is to be made in the image of God. And in case you're not sure what that means, Psalm 8 has actually helped us out. Psalm 8 is further commentary. It's poetic commentary of Genesis 1. So when we put these two passages of scripture together, we see that humans are crowned with glory and honor. So if I could get a little theological teaching in real quick, I want to just briefly show that several times when people have thought throughout church history, what's the image of God? They've thought about it in five different ways. There's five big views. First, people think that the image of God might mean that humans have the ability to reason, like have mental capacity or have personality. So it just talks more about like the mental, emotional side of a human being and that that sets us apart and that's what it means to be made in the image of God. That's view number one. View number two, some people think image of God refers to our spiritual qualities, the fact that we have a spirit or soul, this aspect of our being that's non-material and that just like God we know in John chapter 4, verse 24, the Bible says God is spirit. So to be made in his likeness is to be spiritual like he is. So view number one, reason, personality. 
View number two, spiritual qualities. View number three is physical qualities. There are many that have thought that throughout church history that we are made the way we are in our human body because this is what God looks like. This is resembling what his body would be like. And this is why Jesus came in the human body that he came in because that's what God looks like. View number four, the ability to have a relationship with God. So in essence, to be an image bearer of God, this view would say to have a relationship with God and the ability to do so and all that that might entail. It's kind of a combination of several of those views, but that being more of the core of it. Fifth and finally, and of course, if you've ever listened to teaching quite like this, the fifth and the last one, you know, it's always the right one. At least in my mind, I would like to argue that the way to understand the image of God is the ability to rule or to have dominion. And as a result, we are God's representatives on the earth. It has to do with ruling and dominion. It is what you saw in Psalm 8, glory and honor, being crowned. It's what you hear in Genesis 1 when it says in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. That is the very nature and heart of what it means to be made in God's image. It is to be those that rule over. This is what makes us different and set apart from the rest of creation. It is our function. It is the task and the essence of who we are. So the background behind this is that in the ancient world, when the Bible was written, everywhere where a king wanted to express his dominance and rule, he would set up statues. And these statues were called selim in Hebrew. Selim is the exact same word translated here as image. So if it helps you, I honestly think sometimes it helps me. If I don't read it, so God created man in his image, I sometimes read it, so God created man as his statue. That's literally what this passage is saying. We are his embodied statue. It's one of the reasons why in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments begin by saying, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make an idol or a statue or an image of God. You want to know why? Why is that so wrong? Because God already made a statue of himself. He already made his physical embodied representation to have rule over the world. So in the same way that when a king puts up a statue, he physically can't be everywhere all at the same time because, you know, human kings are limited. They're just humans. But if you're in the ancient world, you need to realize they thought they were gods. So they thought they could be everywhere and rule everywhere. And in this sort of manner, they would set up statues. And wherever that statue was, you would have to treat the statue as if it was the king himself. And in the same way, human beings are to be not a wooden or star, uh, a stone or carved image of God himself as some sort of inanimate object. We're a, a living, breathing, life-giving statue of God. And wherever humans are, we will represent the rule of God for better or for worse. And so it is not to read the image of God as being some invisible quality in us. 
Being made in God's image doesn't mean, oh, that's because we have a soul and animals don't. We have a spirit and the ability to have a relationship with God or the mental capacity of reason. I believe it's true. We have some of those uh, aspects of our being, but we use those aspects for the sake of being image bearers or statues of God, human representatives of God's rule and reign in heaven here on earth. So we, we are not, to make it clear, to be a human being is not to be a soul trapped inside of a human body. We are fundamentally a human body and we have a soul, but we are not a body with a soul in it. We are a soul. We are a soul. We are a body and we are a complex unity of oneness that brings together all different aspects of our being and our fundamental purpose as human beings, the way God made us is to represent his rule and reign on the earth. Or as the psalmist says it, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. We are amazing creatures. And therefore, it should lead us to burst out in praise and song and celebration when we marvel at what God has made, namely us. The Bible affirms the dignity of every single human being, no matter who you are, no matter how rich or poor, no matter what color of your skin or where you were born, what ethnicity or language you speak. We are all image bearers. And this is so fundamental to the Bible's teaching. And it's so helpful for how we think about issues of justice and righteousness and what's right and wrong and how we treat one another and love each other. So I want you to notice the paradox, though, in Psalm 8. Look down at Psalm 8 one more time. And I want you to notice that the psalmist is communicating to us a contrast of significance. On the one hand, he is going to begin by noticing the insignificance of humans, but then talk about our significance. It's as if we are significantly insignificant. That's the way I read Psalm 8. Look, look again at Psalm 8. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, this is verse three, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of man and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, in comparison to the grandeur of the universe, we are a small, teeny little blip. We are nothing. We are insignificant. Why would God even care about us? Who are we? That's what the psalmist is saying here in verses 3 and 4. But then he transitions. Yet, verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's the sons of God, the spiritual creatures. And you have crowned humans, us puny little insignificant creatures. We have the glory and honor and the dominion over the work of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet. So I think this should lead us to praise. And I want to encourage all of us in our homes right now, if you're listening to this on a recording later on, if you're watching this now on a Zoom call, I want you to take a moment and I want us to pause right here. And I want each of us to have a little bit of space, a little bit of time to have time of praise. So whether you're by yourself or you're at home with your family, I want you to know that this is a great way for us to praise God. And so let's lead our families or ourselves in a prayer of praise. And I want to suggest that before you do, I'm going to give you a little bit of time for you 
to make a list or just talk out loud, discuss with yourself or with your family, what are some ways that humans are both insignificant when compared to God? And then also think about some ways that humans are significant and treasured and valued in the eyes of God. And then lead your family in a prayer of praise over this reality that we are both nothing, dust to the earth, a drop in the bucket, whatever language or biblical phrases come to mind of like how big God is and how little we are. And then think about how great we are in the eyes of God and give praise to him for both of these realities. Let's do that now for a brief minute or two. And then we will continue on with our next two songs from Jesus side and great are you Lord. through 10. This title of section that we're going to talk about for a second here is what is whole body worship? And um, I want to point our attention actually first to Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, really verse 1 specifically. And this is what Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I think it's really inc- cool to notice here in this section of scripture that we're being encouraged to present not just like a hand, not just like a voice, not just our ears or something like that, but specifically saying to present your bodies, your body being your whole body as a living sacrifice. And that is what is holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So when we think about this idea of well, what is whole body worship? How, how do we know to, how to worship with not just using our voice or not just using our ears, but to engage our entire body? And um, if, we, if we turn and when, if you look at in your worship guide, there's a whole bunch of scripture passages that are listed there. Psalm, from Psalm 95, Daniel 6, Luke 22, and if you spend some time later today or at some point going and looking through those passages, you'll, you'll notice that there's a lot of different postures of approaching the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to go through those here in just a second. But the fact that the Lord invites us and we see and we learn in scripture that praying and that singing as we worship, as we sing songs, we're also offering prayers to the Lord, that we wouldn't just be people who engage our tongue, but we'd be people who engage our entire bodies in from a posture that is developed in a response to wanting to submit ourselves to the Lord. Um, and in those passages, we see that the, the Lord has invited us and we are learning from um, years past from Old Testament, from our brothers and sisters, that they would kneel, that they would bow, that they would stand, they'd fall on their faces, they would dance, they would lift their hands up. All of these things are actions that they would do in a response to wanting to submit themselves and their entire bodies as an act of worship to the Lord. 
Yeah, I think that that's something really, as someone who's a creative and an artist and loves to dance and does a lot of theater, I'm very involved in how I use my body and thinking intentionally about how I engage circumstances, whether it's on stage in using my body to help present a story or to show uh, some sort of artistic piece and how more so than the should we, if the Lord, the God of the universe who has created us, who is our ultimate creative, given us the ability to be artistic and creative beings to then use our bodies as a way of celebrating and submitting and worshiping and in prayer, I think that there's something that we really experience when we allow ourselves to take a posture that is kneeling. It's different. It's typically, it can be very uncomfortable, especially if we're not used to it or raising our hands or bowing our flat, laying face down on the ground or even dancing in, in prayer and in worship, whether that's in service, in community, or if just at home, developing a posture uh, of prayer changes are the way that we even think. Uh, and so as we now, we're going to look to First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, I pray that we would see how the, what the Lord is offering us here and who he's t- teaching us and asking us to pray for, and then as a result, how to do so. And I'll invite us to do that here in just a second. But First um, Timothy Timothy chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful, respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So will we take a moment now um, to spend time uh, in verse 8 here, we are encouraged to lift holy hands. Now, if you want to do that, I would encourage in your, in your homes, you can simply just from where you're sitting, even to lift your hands up, you can lift them up over your head. If you want to, as I pray here, that's might be a long time to hold your hands up, but by all means, feel free to do that. Or if you just want to hold them in a posture that is lifting up hands to offer, we're wanting to say, Lord, I want to, I want to give you something. I'm going to ask to receive something. And like when we receive something with our hands, it's, like if our hands are closed or they're closed off at our side, we're not going to be able to receive something if someone's trying to give us a gift because we're not trying to offer, we're not trying to receive it. So maybe we just develop or hold a posture now that is lifting holy hands, lifting our hands up, asking as we um, pray this prayer of petition for the Lord to act and to move in, in our community and in our leaders together. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you 
in a posture that is developed, that is asking, Lord, that we would, we would see change. Lord, that you would empower our leaders in government, our governor, our president, and those who are in charge to make decisions, even regarding COVID-19 right now, Lord, with the, uh, this virus, our pandemic, the world that we're currently living in. We pray that you would empower them and give them wisdom, that they would act out of understanding and wisdom and love for people and love for and care for their neighbor, Lord, that we would be led well. Lord, we, we don't like the circumstances in which we currently are having to live. It can feel, and it feels very uncomfortable for a lot of us, and it's not what we're used to. So we ask, Father, that you would provide our leaders again with the wisdom to help showing us and leading us in a way that is helping to develop and move us in a direction and a trajectory that allows us to actually just see you more, whatever that area, whatever that way is, Lord. We don't necessarily want to just go back to normal. We want to go back to a way that is allowing to see Jesus made more known, made fuller, and Lord, that the world would understand and recognize their need for the gospel. So Lord, I know it's, it's scary to pray that, but we, we all open up our hands and we receive that. We receive whatever it is that you desire to show us. And Lord, in the way that our governmental leaders lead us, we ask that you would provide them with the wisdom that we would receive the expectations that are then put on us, Lord, and we would steward them in a way that is godly, that is full of worship, that is engaging our entire bodies as we continue to pray, Lord, that this would just be the beginning of an extension of a prayer as we ask for you ultimately then to be their leader and to be our leader, that we would fix our eyes, that we would follow Christ, Lord, that we would see you and that we wouldn't try to look towards man for our hope, Lord, but we would see that you are providing hope for society, for, for communities, and for individuals because of the way that you are radically already changing us. We ask that you would do that for us so that we can be people who catalyze change in our own neighborhoods, who live lives that are full of love and that are full of responsibility geared towards not being ashamed of the gospel but proclaiming it out of the way that we live, out of the way that we speak, and because of the result of the leadership that we are receiving, Lord, the leadership as the Godhead, Lord, as Jesus is the head of, of us, that we look to you as our ultimate king, but also that you would provide so much strength and wisdom, Lord, we plead that you would do so for our government and for our officials now, that we would grow stronger in understanding and fullness of wanting to see Jesus and you made known that this would be a time that causes you to, and your name to spread across nations. We fervently, eagerly pray this and receive now whatever it is you want us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.
part of your worship guide turns our attention to Psalm 35. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 35. The third question we want to address is, so then why do our bodies matter? And specifically, we're going to look at an example of fasting in the Bible from Psalm 35 and how the body is used as a way to communicate, as we saw or heard earlier, body talk, that we image God through our actual physical representation here on earth, the very desires and heart of God. And so there's a example of fasting that's maybe a little less known in the Bible. Uh, I came across it in some of my studies and reading on fasting And so I want to just read this section, this middle part of it. Instead of reading the whole psalm, I really want to narrow in our attention and zero in on these verses. Verses 11 to verse 14. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So the first thing you need to be thinking about when you read this, obviously you can notice that I'm reading this because David, the psalmist, is praying and fasting and he's wearing sackcloth and he is taking on an embodied spirituality. But the real interesting moment is when you realize who, not just what he is doing, but who David is praying and fasting for. What is the occasion? And to kind of recap what we've talked about in the podcast messages in the last couple weeks, fasting is not starting with fasting and then I want certain results, so I do fasting in order to get fill in the blank, answered prayer, God to listen to me better, I want some sort of decision and help with discernment. Uh, fasting is a response. So think of it in a linear pattern. A, letter A, there is something that happens. B, letter B, so in response to something that happens, fasting is an appropriate response sometimes. Then there are times because of the fruit of fasting that results come. But those results are just in the hands of God and not something that we can manipulate God with or to think, oh, if I fast, then I get what I want. So here in this text, we see that David is fasting in response to something. So look closely again at the passage. What is he fasting in response to? And in verse 13, it's quite clear. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. So notice the very physical embodied expression here of worship. My head is down low into my chest, he says. He is wearing sackcloth, which is a a sort of humble, scratchy, itchy, uncomfortable clothing to afflict oneself. 
He doesn't eat food. He afflicts his body and his flesh with uh, not going with going without food for a while. And all of this is because somebody was sick. And so, as we've talked about, when people are sick with coronavirus, when you get sick, when loved ones are suffering, when the poor are not eating, we can stand in solidarity with them. We can pray for them. We can connect with our whole being in a way that's not just going on with everyday life and say a short prayer mentally in my head and act like, okay, moving on to my next thing. But really connecting with the poor and the hungry and the weak and the hurting. If you would like to engage during the coronavirus, even if you might think, oh, things are pretty good right now, but I want to connect with those who are sick. I have been suggesting, not demanding, not commanding, not telling you you must or you're not a real Christian, but that one constant way throughout the Bible that people responded to times like the times we're going through right now, like sickness, is to fast. So that's the basic idea that we're trying to suggest in these last few weeks is to consider the practice of fasting. We've also mentioned that some people should not fast, that it's not the right time, it's not the right season for you, whether that's because of your health, your spiritual maturity, the state that, that which you find yourself. Uh, there are certainly ways that you can substitute the practice of fasting in particular with the practice of abstaining something else. Maybe you abstain from television and every time instead of you would have watched television or watched the news and find the latest updates, you, you turn that time into prayer and you think through the needs of others. So consider that as a, a way to practice fasting and respond to this season that we are in. But there's one more thing before we conclude our time that we must see in this text. It says in verse 13, 13, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. So I think the question needs to be, who, who was David praying for? Who was he fasting for? It's clear to me that his sorrow is not fully expressed. As, as one author, a uh, commentator of the psalmist, John Goldengay, says that David's sadness was not fully bloomed until his whole body was involved in fasting. It assumes that merely for him to fear sadness would not have been enough. Because we are physical creatures and we're not just a mind and a spirit, it would have been odd to express this sorrow and then continue eating food. So he's afflicting oneself and his spirit with his whole body by fasting. But for who? And when you read verse 11, it's malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil. For, they repay, good for, repay me evil for good and my soul is bereft. And when they were sick, I fasted. In other words, these people are persecutors. These people are David's enemies. These people do not love David. They are not his family or his friends, his mother or his brother. Another commentator says this, David's sincerity, the very depth of his love and honesty is communicated by his enduring suffering, by afflicting himself with fasting, 
praying for those who are not his close friends or family members, and all of this should heighten the sense of amazement and the offense at his opponents. At his opponents, All David does is love these people. All he does is that when they get sick, he so identifies himself with them by fasting himself. That's what David does for these people. And what do they do in return? Read the rest of the psalm and you'll see all through Psalm 35 that they are continually treating him with contempt and scorn and mocking and pain and suffering. And so his grief is compared in this psalm to the deep personal mourning for a friend, a brother, or even one's mother. David fasts. We talked about last week standing in solidarity for the poor. And some of you might be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. This text does not make sense to your natural flesh. David fasts to stand in solidarity with sick enemies, with people that are coming after him with ill will and evil. He gives them good and they repay him with evil. How does David's example not remind you of Jesus Christ himself, his own love for his enemies? Immediately, my thoughts started to run to Romans chapter 5 and the great love that God shows us through sending Jesus. It says in verse 6 of Romans 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we have now received reconciliation. How did Jesus respond when people were evil against him and he only loved them back with prayers? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And unlike David, he didn't just fast and give up food to display his love for his enemies. He gave up himself, his very life. I think I see in Psalm 35 a little picture or taste of the beauty of self-sacrificial love and kindness that's displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ, that as he is dying, as he is getting repaid evil for all of his good deeds and all of his sincerity and honesty, he prays for them. And he gives everything he has, not just a meal or two or a few dollars. He gives his very life for us. This is the good news of the gospel. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, for if while we were enemies while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. He loved us, as the language of Psalm 35, like a brother, like his own mother. Jesus died and treated us like we did not deserve. Friends, this should really lead us to worship. This should lead us to repent of our sins, to put our trust in Jesus if we've never done that for the very first time. It should restore and renew in our hearts a love for God through Jesus Christ. 
And so what we're going to do now is sing these next two songs, Heart Abandoned and Be Thou My Vision, both of which are songs that are going to communicate a desire to say, God, we want to give our whole being as you gave your whole self for us. The only appropriate response is to give everything back to you, God. And so we do that now. We sing these songs, Heart Abandoned and Be Thou My Vision. If Adam, you could lead us in those songs. matter? Why does it matter that we use our bodies in the way that we do or that our spirituality would be embodied? Let me close with these final words of consideration. Typically, when we finish out our worship service, we do so by taking the bread and the cup. We typically will gather together in a church facility and we will pass around the elements of representation of the body and the blood of Jesus. I want you to just do a thought experiment for me, with me for a second. What if we just started to say, you know, this Zoom call stuff and this coronavirus quarantine, it's not all that bad. Actually, maybe we should just do this indefinitely. Let's just all stay home. We don't have to pay money to rent a building anymore. And we don't actually need to be together physically. You know, like we could be together in spirit. And when we take the Lord's Supper, it doesn't really matter that we all come together like the way the Bible explains it in 1 Corinthians 11 and actually breaking bread and having fellowship and giving each other hugs and holy kisses and spending time in each other's presence. What if we just said, you know, it's all just mental and emotional and spiritual stuff anyway. It's all just about remembering Jesus's body and his blood it's not about actually eating the bread and drinking. That stuff just is insignificant. How would you feel? What do you think about this future movement of Embassy Church? If we were to suggest as elders, it doesn't really matter if there's a physical embodied expression of church or the Lord's Supper or baptism. Let's just not get water out next time. That was a big hassle, you know, getting a big tank and filling up the water and all that, emptying it out. Let's just mentally in our minds kind of imagine somebody going down in the waters and back up. I hope you start to see that worship, the Lord's Supper, prayer, bowing your head, raising hands, kneeling on the ground, standing up in honor of the word of God. There are various different traditions and practices. The Bible doesn't necessarily command or tell us you have to do one or the other, but you need to understand it does matter. And it matters because not only were we made this way, but this is the way that God decided to reveal himself through Jesus and redeem us this way. Jesus' resurrected body, his incarnation, his coming to say this body, this human expression of 
image bearing. It matters so much. I am going to leave the heavenly throne. I am going to become one of those embodied human beings. And I will stay that way for all of eternity. Right now, Jesus Christ has risen and he reigns in human bodily form. Why does it matter that our worship is body? Because it will be forever. Right now is just practice for the day when Jesus returns and we will give embodied spiritual worship for all of eternity. So get used to it, brothers and sisters. This, what we're doing right now, is not normal. This is not the way it once it should be. I'm hoping and praying that there is a longing for us to see each other face to face and for us to break bread together and eat the Lord's Supper and actually take food and put it in our mouth and actually drink juice and say, not just the remembrance in our mind and the spiritual thing we're doing in our heart, but the actual command Jesus gives is do this because there's something in the embodied doing that actually makes us different people. And so I want to leave you with that thought and I want to leave you with this word of benediction. It's from Revelation chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. It says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And then they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.